Hello, everyone. I'm Joseph Long, and this is episode three of This is the Long Version. Stories and musings about 21st century parenting, education, and organizing the creative process. Enlightening conversations with special guests about music, film, art, family, history, and the outdoors. With a cup of reheated coffee from the top of a Pacific Northwest mountain, I'm Joseph Long, and this is the long version. I'm sad. I am sad because of who I don't have here in the studio today. I do not have my youngest brother, Jeremy M. Long. I do not have my youngest sister, Vanessa Cherie Long, here in the studio today. This week, each of them released new music. Jeremy, under a side project he's doing, Shade Garden. He just has one song out right now that you should definitely check out on SoundCloud. I think I just said check out a bunch of times. Forgive me. But you should definitely check out. I'll return to it at the end just in case you forget. Or you can just stop listening to this right now and go find him on Instagram or SoundCloud or somewhere. Jeremy M. Long. Also, my youngest sister, Lanessa Cherie Long, musician, comedian, released a new song, Both of them uh, have entered into NPR's Tiny Desk concert series, and they both have delightful tracks that you are going to want to hear. If you have any taste for music whatsoever, you're going to want to hear. I'm happy because they release new music, and I'm happy because one of these days I will have them here talking to them in person uh, about their music, and they are very lovely people. But I don't have them here right now. However, I'm happy about something else, and that is that I have a special guest today who you might have already heard in episode one. These episodes just run together. I've already done two of them, so I don't even remember everybody I've had on. But I'm pretty sure that I've had today's guest on before. Uh, My nine-year-old son will be here again to talk about Greek mythology, tragic comic endings in film, and, oh, what else? Oh, Sir Quentin Blake, one of the great British illustrators that he's been very inspired by, is he has started his own blog and YouTube series about illustration. Uh, I will also be talking, of course, about science, history, religion, family, relationships, a bunch of those things that are dear to my heart and telling some stories and stuff like that. So thank you very much for being here. Love you. Three discoveries that can be disappointing to a child. Finding out that there is allegedly not an actual man who lives permanently on the moon. Finding out that really good movies with great characters are frequently followed by mediocre and forgettable sequels. Finding out that despite their homophonic similarity, there is a discernible difference between eating a waffle and eating a falafel. Learning that umbrellas are not near as effective in combating gravity as Mary Poppins would have you believe. Discovering that a person's success in a particular field, like sports, is often a terrible indicator of how decent a human being they are. Finding out that Willy Wonka's chocolate factory is made up, and cavities aren't. Finding out that ostriches can't fly, and that supposedly there's no such thing as dragons. Finding out that it's a lot harder to find stylish footsie pajamas the older, taller, and bigger you get. Also, discovering that recess is no longer a basic human right, like clean water or free Wi-Fi. Anyway, those are just a few things that popped into my head. I've dealt with a lot of disappointment. I'll think of more. The following is an interaction with my son when he was three years old. It's called, We do not hate science in this family, and you will learn to love Star Trek someday. Okay? You know what I'm really excited to watch with you someday? I asked my son, and I patiently did not wait for an answer. Star Trek, I said. Well, he stated matter-of-factly, I don't want to see Star Trek. 
Why? I said. Because, he spoke slowly, it has science in it, and I don't really like science. What? I exploded. That does it. We are going to start watching it really soon, and you will like it. And we do like science. Get it? Got it? Good. He shrugged and went back to drawing a picture of Cyclops eating Odysseus, his alternate depiction of the timeless tale, a tale which also features a bit of science, mostly physics. So I'm speaking to one of my favorite people on the planet, nine-year-old, happens to be my oldest son. Thank you for being here for a second time. You're welcome. Uh, No, I understand you are really into... Greek mythology. Greek mythology, that's right. I always forget. I only get reminded about... 43 times a day, so sometimes I start to forget. Yeah. Uh, how and when did you become so immersed in Greek mythology? Sometime in 2018, was it? Okay. Or was it 2018? Uh, I'm going to say 2018. It's been oh. quite some time. Is there anything that really sparked your interest in mythology and Greek mythology specifically? Well, before that, I was into uh, Greek catapults and then when we went to Pals, I was looking for books, and I found a lot of Greek mythology books, and it made me even more into it. Okay. Now, for anybody who might not be familiar, Pals Books is one of the greatest independent bookstores in the United States. And if you happen to be ordering books at all during this time of the pandemic, then consider ordering from Pals because they need our support a great deal right now, and they're just simply an awesome place to be. We want them to open up again one of these days. Yeah. So would you give me a quick rundown of the story of Theseus? So um, King Aegeus really wants a son, the king of Athens. But when he goes to the oracle at Delphi, then uh, he can't understand what the oracle says. So he visits his friend on the way back and he eventually has a son, uh, Theseus, and but he also might be the son of Poseidon. So later, who, who is Poseidon? Uh, the god of the sea in Greek mythology. Okay. So later, um, he when he goes back to his throne in Athens, he gives his wife a some sandals and a sword, and uh, buries him under a rock and asks her to make him lift it over and get them when he's 16. So later he goes on a journey, kills a bunch of monsters and stuff, becomes a hero in Athens, and then King Minos sends him into the labyrinth. And, or he, send, he wants to go to the labyrinth. So And what is to, the labyrinth? A giant maze with a minotaur in it. Uh, half fun. bull, half human. So he goes in to kill it. Why would he want to kill it instead of just have it like, so, for a pet? Because King Minos wants to send uh, children there to die because to stop a war between uh, Athens and Crete. So he does that to kill them. So Theseus wants it to stop, so he kills the Minotaur. Wait a second. So it's sort of like a sacrifice? Yeah. Why would Theseus do that? Was he forced to go into the labyrinth? No. Okay. How does he end up, I mean, since nobody else could defeat the Minotaur, how does he manage to do so? 
I think he pulls off the horn and jabs it into the minotaur. Okay, I mean, I wasn't actually looking for the graphic description, um, but I mean, that is helpful. What's the big deal about the maze? I mean, what's the big deal about the labyrinth? I mean, so you go in, you kill a minotaur, you walk out again, big deal. Oh, no, the it is so twisty and turny that there's no way, it's almost impossible to get out. That would be challenging for me because I have a lot of difficulty following directions to begin with a lot of times, so I would definitely get lost. Yeah. Does he have any help? Um, Ariadna, uh, King Minos's daughter. That's a beautiful name. Yeah. Okay, well that sounds like a very happy ending. Um, okay, so Theseus manages to defeat the defeat the oh, minotaur and, and his father before he went to kill the minotaur his father told him that if he comes back alive raise the white sail on the ship and he forgets to so his father commits suicide that is absolutely awful so wait a second if we would have just ended the story earlier then it would have been kind of a happy ending and he would have been yeah. with does he end up with ariadna for a while and then he abandons her what? He marries Dionysius instead. So, how would you describe the ending of the story of Theseus? I mean, is it happy, sad, bittersweet, tra tragic? I think it's tragic. What makes a tragic ending? When something terrible happens at the end, like when Aegeus commits suicide. That is that is awful. How do you feel? Like, I know you saw a film recently, and you can't say the name of it because some people may not have seen this film. Okay, let me go in a different direction. You've been writing a lot of stories recently, and oftentimes you get this grin on your face, and I know that the ending to your story is going to be where basically something awful happens to the hero, to the yeah. protagonist, and yeah. you seem to think that's very hilarious. And you and your older sister told me a year or two, a couple of years ago, you said, why does it seem like all these stories, the hero always wins, and Everything is all happy in the end. So over the last year or so, we've been watching more and more films where, well, we've been reading and studying Shakespeare, which just often has some straight up... Very tragic. <laughs> very tragic endings. We've been watching some films that have maybe what might be Can described as not altogether happy endings. So... I'm going to give just a small spoiler about Castaway, the Tom Hanks film where he's on an island. Um, so if you haven't seen it, it's not a it's not a major one. It's just in the sense that the movie ends with on a bittersweet note. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, even though that's a big spoiler. Well, I, I gave a pre-spoiler. I mean, I, I gave a spoiler you alert. You were very against spoilers, and you just gave a spoiler. Okay, but I gave a spoiler alert. That's that's the thing. I said I'm giving a spoiler, so don't. I okay. mean, shouldn't I get yeah. off the hook for that one? Yeah. I think that's I think that's fair. Now I know I can see you. Our our listeners cannot see you, but I can see your face, and you are just so excited to share a film that you saw recently that I really was not intending to watch with you until you were a little bit older. But something just can convinced I see the me. Name? You may yes, but you may not give any major spoilers. Okay. A Quiet Place. Tell me about A Quiet Place. Um, it's about, so it's post-apocalyptic, 
post-apocalyptic, so after an apocalypse. And What is an apocalypse? When the world is, like, the people are wiped off of the earth by aliens or other things. So, it's Does a, it have to be aliens? I'm not sure. I mean, what if it was I don't, no, like a giant, like a giant tsunami yeah, or could be that. asteroid or something like that? Yeah, it could be that. So I think. Okay. Yeah. So could we agree a catastrophic event that has yeah. wiped out a large yeah. amount of humanity? Yeah. So uh, there's a family left after an alien invasion and the aliens are blind, but they have incredible hearing and they can hear even like... If you say hi, one will come after you in about five seconds and gobble you up. No, is this uh, is this a documentary or is this not at all? Okay, and is it a is it a comedy? Like, no, I'm asking. Obviously, I've seen it. I watched it before before you did, so I know twice as much about it as you do, right? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not completely, but um, did you? Was it was it terrifying? No, not really. More suspenseful. What's the difference between terrifying and suspenseful? Suspenseful is just very, like, you want to squeeze something very tight because, like, Jojo Rabbit has a very suspenseful scene in it. Oh, and it ha- scary is just straight up horror, like It the Clown or something. Okay, just, you have not seen yeah, I haven't. or read that Stephen King film book. Or have book. I? <laughs> To my knowledge, you have not. We have no plans to. Yeah. Um, okay, and the suspenseful scene that you refer to in Jojo Rabbit, I would agree. That is an absolutely lovely masterpiece of suspense. Um, yeah. But A Quiet Place, anything... Uh, did you enjoy the film overall? I mean... Yes, I rate it five stars, and it's in my top five favorite movies. Really? Yes. Okay, and how's your hand and arm doing? I know... In the course of watching it, your your mother was snuggled up to you, oh, and yes. she almost ripped your arm off. A Very few times. sore. She was squeezing it like, oh, it felt like pliers coming all the way over your arms, tightening and tightening. Who do you think was more <coughs> frightened watching it, you or her? Probably. I'm actually not sure. Maybe equally. Maybe so. You were good viewing partners. Yes. Okay. Well, I would. I love the stories that you write, and I hope that some of our listeners have the chance sometime to read and write some of the things that uh, you've been creating. Would you like to say anything about your your blog on here? Oh, yes. Uh, I started a blog, and I share a lot of things that I've been doing with homeschooling and move, movie recommendations and book recommendations and other things. Well, and I have to jump in here because there's one thing in particular that you've spent a lot of time doing involving Quentin Blake. Oh, yeah. I've been, uh, I really like Quentin Blake's art, so I've been uh, looking at some of his art to try to draw. Quentin Blake, that name sounds so familiar. It's It almost sounds British. Yes. How would I be familiar with Quentin Blake's work? Um, He's actually Sir Quentin Blake, but he illustrated uh, Roald Dahl's children's books. <sighs> That's where it is. Well, it seems like a lot of his illustrations are kind of sloppy and sort of, I mean, are they really that good? Yes. They are? Mm-hmm. Why? Because I kind of like the scribbly lines, how they're not super smooth, and how they, the expressions and stuff. 
and just how he kind of, yeah, I love how they look. Well, I have thoroughly enjoyed the different phases your art has taken you through over the last nine years. And I think as far as choosing somebody to be inspired by with illustration, then Sir Quentin Blake is a great person to to learn from. So good choice. And I love the tutorials you've been doing. What's the, where could people find your blog if anybody wanted to to read it? Um, Look up jxil.blogspot.com. Oh, yes. And by the way, it also has a link to my YouTube. (laughs) Thank you very much. Is there anything else you'd like to say? Are you surviving and thriving in this time of Yeah. Time of trouble? So far in my life. Okay, good. Well, Except I have the coronavirus. Okay. I apologize. You've said so many wonderful things. That's not one of them. In spite of that, you are one of my favorite beings on the face of this planet. May you continue to walk and make art for many, many decades to come. Okay. Thank you for being here. My son, Johannes, nine years old. Until next time, see you upstairs. I am fascinated by other people's fascinations and fixations. Not every single person and not every single fixation. But I am interested, for example, in why somebody is really, really into something like, say, fantasy football, something which really does not interest me a great deal. I am much more interested in why somebody would really be into fantasy football than I am in actually, you know, being into fantasy football myself. But I also recognize that I am into some things that other people may not think are necessarily that interesting. For example, I think it is absolutely fascinating to learn about Greek and Latin, the roots of the first language that I speak, and I like to say first language because it implies that I speak other languages as well. I don't. English is my first language and the only language that I actually speak really well. I hope to not say that uh, someday as I get older, but for the time being, uh, I primarily (laughs) communicate in English. But I think it is so fascinating to learn where so much of our language, of this language, came from. So, Our Greek word of the day is astron. This is just one of the most beautiful words, and I have to actually kind of cheat and give two words because one of my favorite Greek words is actually two roots put together. So our Greek word for this week is astron, A-S-T-R-O-N. One of the ways that learning Greek and Latin roots starts to become really exciting is when you combine words together. So for example, when you take the Greek word for star, which is, as you know now, is astron, and you combine it with, oh, say, the Greek word for, oh, I don't know, sailor, which would be nauta, N-A-U-T-A. So think of the word nautilus, for example, referring to the sea. Nauta refers to sailor. So when you put together those two Greek roots, astron and nauta, what do you get? You get star sailor. So an astronomer is literally a star sailor. Tell me that is not absolutely beautiful. How can you not look up at the stars and imagine yourself sailing through them again and not think of the the words that are so magnificently used to describe somebody who is traveling through the stars, sailing through the stars. I love that. 
So we're picking up the second volume of American History. I'm calling it the second volume because it's the second time I'm talking about it. Thank you again for being here for the third episode. When we were talking about American History last, we ended in the mid-1800s, and I told you we were going to talk about the Civil War. We talked a little bit about the different economies of the North and South. And the first question we're going to kick off with here today from one of our listeners, spoiler alert, it's not a listener, I made up this question and pitched it to myself, so I'm now going to answer it as well. Isn't the United States, like, a pretty moral nation? Well, if we look at the early to mid-1800s, then of course we'd like to think that, yes, we are a pretty moral nation. And some people make a bunch of money writing books and staying in office and talking about how other people should live super moral lives. And then a lot of times those people are the ones who end up in prison later on for secretly having done a bunch of not moral stuff. That's what we call hypocrisy. The United States was built on the idea of independence and liberty, the freedom for individuals to live their lives without illegitimate interference from the government. That's what they were fighting for in the Revolutionary War against England. But, as with many revolutionary movements grounded in idealism, once the powerless are in power, they sadly adopt some of the same repressions and oppressions that they once valued. When they refuse to acknowledge that discrepancy, we call it hypocrisy. So it's fair to say the U.S. is built on a lot of great ideas. But we have to own up to the fact that, historically, the application and execution of those ideologies to all has been inconsistent and hypocritical, especially when it comes to slavery and Native Americans. So this is the deal with Native Americans. In some ways, they would have been better off if the British had won. Actually, in many ways, they might have been. But that didn't happen. So when the U.S. finally had its independence, it celebrated this independence by moving Native Americans off their tribal lands and on to less desirable land. The land they got moved to was pretty decent, even though they had gotten forcibly moved. At least the U.S. government signed treaties with them that guaranteed these lands would remain theirs, until and unless, oh, white people might possibly need even more land. Surprise, of course they did, and definitely when they found gold on Native lands. At that point, it was a no-brainer for the government, especially the government under President Andrew Jackson. The short version is, they forcibly moved Native Americans to new reservations far away from their homes. Thousands of them died, and the journey they made is called the Trail of Tears, for good reason. Next question. That's awful. Did things start to get better after all the moving and resettling? Again, we're around the mid-1800s, and the answer is no. Remember that whole slavery thing? Still a big deal going in, going into the mid-1800s. Plantation owners didn't want to give up their free labor. Slaves didn't want to be slaves. Some brave people, most notably Harriet Tubman, organized into the Underground Railroad, which was a network of people and homes who helped runaway slaves get to freedom. And freedom had a name. Canada. If a slave made it to Canada, they were assured of not being returned to plantation slavery. Meanwhile... A growing number of people in the North, called abolitionists, were organizing and speaking out against slavery. This was not popular in the South. Next question. So, the North and the South argued a bunch? Yep. And the arguing turned into war. The Civil War. Because the United States was fighting itself. The South wanted to break away so it could do its own thing, mainly slavery, and the North, led by President Lincoln, wanted to do two things— Number one, 
keep the United States together, as in not let the South leave, a process called secession. And number two, abolish slavery at the federal level so it would not be legal in any state or territory, present or future. The Civil War was awful. It lasted four years, hundreds of thousands, to be more, a little more precise, over 620,000 people, uh, soldiers were killed. And in the end, the North won, and the United States was kept intact, and legalized slavery was ended. But the effects of the Civil War laid a foundation for regional identities, conflicts, and dynamics that continue to today. And next week in American history, then we'll pick up with, well, I'm just going to surprise you. Thanks for being here. Chapter two of our unit on science. If you want to skip this section, it's totally fine. Not because science is not great or important, it is, but because chapter two is about Earth. And if you're reading this or listening to this, then chances are you might live on Earth. Most of my listeners so far um, are inhabitants of Earth, to my knowledge. So you probably know pretty much everything that I'm going to say about Earth, but I'm just going to run through a few things that maybe will be good little refreshers. Um, First of all, we have what's called a sun-earth-moon system. A lot of things are affected by the relationship between Earth and the sun and the moon. Things like tides and sunsets and seasons and length of days and the moon. Let's explore a little bit. So what shape is the Earth? It's a sphere, basically, like a little squished sphere. It's a little bit bigger around the equator than it is at the poles. Why is this? Well, because as it's rotating, it stretches out slightly. Now, what's the difference between rotating and revolving? Do you, do you remember that? Earth is constantly spinning around an imaginary vertical line running from the South Pole to the North Pole. This type of motion is called rotation. Terrestrial planets, such as Earth, have an iron core. An iron core coupled with its rotation is what gives Earth its magnetic field. Now, going back to the idea of of Earth's motion, the difference between rotating and revolving. So Earth is constantly spinning around an imaginary vertical line that runs from the South Pole to the North Pole. This motion is called rotation. One rotation takes 24 hours. Does that length of time sound familiar? Yep. One rotation equals one day. Sometimes people like to complain about, wouldn't it be great to have six more hours in a day? Well, guess what? Science. Okay, so one rotation takes 24 hours. A revolution, on the other hand, takes 365 days. The amount of time it takes for the Earth to go around the sun. That's the revolution. So, technically 365 days and a quarter. A revolution is just a big giant circle. A fancy term might be circumnavigate, but we'll save that for social studies. So Earth makes a complete circle around the sun every 365 days, which is one year. The path it takes is called an orbit. Earth's orbit isn't an actual circle. It's more like an ellipse, which means that it's not the same distance from the sun year round. This is where we start to get into seasons. We'll circle back around to that in just a moment. Earth tilts at an angle of around 23 degrees from the line that is perpendicular to its orbit. 
What this means is that light strikes Earth's surface at different angles when it is at different stages in its orbit, which is where we come up with the idea of seasons. The combination of orbit and tilt creates seasons. When the northern hemisphere is tilted toward the sun, it gets hit with sun rays at a higher angle and for longer periods of time, which mean long days. That means it gets more energy and thus is warmer as well. The inverse is also true. When the northern hemisphere is tilted away from the sun, those rays hit it at a lower angle and for fewer hours. Thus, we have winter, colder temperatures, shorter days. It's a zero-sum situation. The northern and southern hemispheres are always at opposite seasons. Summer at one, winter at the other. Vice versa. Easy enough. It's just science. How about solstices? We call it a solstice when the earth is most tilted toward the sun. That's when the sun is at its greatest distance north or south of the equator. So it is at its highest or lowest in the sky at noon. June 21 is the summer solstice, and it's the longest day of the year. December 21 is the winter solstice, and it's the shortest day of the year. You might be wondering, if we talk about solstices, why would we not talk about equinoxes? Well, it seems fair that if we talk about one, we should talk about the other. So we'll close things out with equinoxes. An equinox is when the earth is not tilted toward or away from the sun. It happens twice a year. We call it the equinox. On these two days, the length of day is the same all over the world, 12 hours. The sun is directly above the equator. It happens in the spring around March 20, and it's called the vernal equinox. It happens in the autumn around September 22, and it's called the autumnal equinox. That wraps up a very short overview of Earth, Moon, Sun, the triad relationship that we have with those two other entities. Next week, the moon is going to be so much more interesting. I don't know why. Probably because most of us don't live on the moon. Some of us have not visited the moon, so it might feel like there's a little more to learn. Next week, the moon. Thanks for being here. Judaism chapter 4, Egypt and the Pharaoh's daughter. Remember where we left off last week? Baby Moses floating down the river in a leaky basket. Let's pick up there. When we last saw him, he was never to be seen again. Or is he? Well, early spoiler alert for this chapter, he is seen again. So this is how it happened. The Pharaoh's daughter liked to bathe occasionally. Once a week, once a month, who knows? Anyway, she went down to bathe in the Nile River. Any idea what's coming next? Yes. In a brilliant example of dramatic irony, she does, in fact, spot the floating baby. She falls in love, and she decides to adopt it as her own, it being him. In a brilliant example of serendipity, Moses's big sister happens to be close by and offers to raise him. Because she lives with her mom, Moses' actual mom can handle the nursing duties, which is probably good. Because even in Egypt's liberal interpretations of familial relationships, a sister nursing her little bro might be a little peculiar. Of course, when he's past the annoying little infant stage, mom and sis will have to hand him over to his new mommy, the princess. As a side note, dramatic irony is when we, the audience, know exactly what's going to happen, but the character doesn't. So, for example, in this scenario, we know the princess is going to find Moses, but she doesn't. Or does she? If she does, then that would be a great example of unreliable narration and storytelling. But that's for another story. 
as another side note, serendipity is kind of luck of the good variety. Like your house gets broken into and everything gets stolen, but then you're on your way to Costco to buy a 20-pound barrel of cashews and you walk in right when they're giving away 8K televisions. So you walk out of the store with something to eat and a brand new telly to watch Homeland on. Serendipitous timing. Lucky you. As one more little side note, Egyptian royalty had very different ideas of close fraternal relationships than many of us do. Frequently, a brother would marry his sister when they were old enough, one way to preserve a a bloodline. So back to the story. Moses lives. Yay! He grows up with two families and at some point learns of his Hebrew heritage. He now has to live with a troubling duality the comforting, luxurious life of privilege he enjoys as an Egyptian royal, and the difficult, oppressed life his people endure daily as Hebrew slaves. Eventually, he snaps. He witnesses an Egyptian slave driver whipping a Hebrew slave and does something about it. I use does something about it as a euphemism. What he does is he kills the slave driver. This should make him a hero to his people, but it's kind of double bad for him. His people are mad at him because now they'll have to face the repercussions of his actions, and the Egyptians are mad at him because the one thing Moses is not allowed to do is to take a Hebrew's side over an Egyptian's, especially when it involves deciding who to kill. Also, you shouldn't kill. Spoiler alert, God gives Moses some instructions later about killing and the importance of not doing so, etc., on some stone tablets, but that's later on. So Moses, post-slave driver killing, runs away into the wilderness, the desert, to be exact. He has many epiphanies and opportunities to think while he's out there for 40 years. Oh, and God speaks to him about things such as his lineage and the importance of having a good staff, etc. So just a quick uh, segue into the chronological, lineological, I think I just made that word up, lineological, lineological, the lineage or chronology of important guys with the less consequential ones skipped. So, sorry, Mahalalil, 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 and Methuselah. That's why I skipped them. So, we go from Adam, to Enoch, to Noah, to Shem, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Joseph, to Moses. Adam, Enoch, Noah, Shem, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses. This might be one of the most controversial things I've ever done in deciding who to include and who to leave out on there. Basically, I included the ones that I was most familiar with, um, but I do feel bad about Methuselah as I'm reading through my notes and and list right now. Somebody should really write a little children's song about this um, and use the word that I just slaughtered, lineological. I'm pretty sure I did make that up. Anyway, that was kind of an unnecessary segue, but while he's out there in the desert, he makes a friend, Jethro. They became such good friends that Jethro gives him a present. The type of present that friends at the time gave each other, or perhaps the type of gift that could prove economically advantageous for both parties. The present was his daughter. Jethro gave Moses his daughter as a gift so he could marry her. Name was Zipporah. Personally, I believe strongly that the gift of one's personal friendship is better than the gift of giving away your daughter to a friend. Or a well-made knife is another type of good present. Anyway, Moses and Zipporah are a thing. They stick around Jethro's place for a while and help look after sheep. 
What was Jethro's wife's name? I don't know. Sadly, like Noah's wife, her identity is simply wife. I have issue with this, but that is for another story, or side note. Next week, we will pick up with a very exciting part of the Bible known as Exodus. Until then. Here's a short snippet about parenting from a while back. Uh, It's a great example of very effective parenting. Uh, It was me. I call it, if you're super good, maybe we'll watch Pulp Fiction 2. Here's the deal I said to the children. If you guys are really good this morning, we'll listen to Radiohead. If we're not, the question was posed. Well, I said, then we'll probably still listen to Radiohead, but one of their lesser albums, like Kid A. Some things can be difficult to get into, a little bit challenging, like, oh, I don't know, opera or Shakespeare. Some things are not difficult to get into. You get, you just instinctually love them. Everybody loves them. And I use absolute pronouns very infrequently. Finding Nemo, the artist Matisse, the poet William Carlos Williams. I admire and love so much his ability to just take small little happenings and find the most elegant, simple, short little ways to highlight it. So this poem, this ode to William Carlos Williams, is very creatively titled Ode to William Carlos Williams. Dreamed a dream, a little dream, a little dream with cold ice cream. No, not all a mode cold, ice cream with something fresh, not old. Like apple, berry, something sweet, please, I beg, keep out the meat. With that creamy ice, I'd like to try nothing more than fresh, warm, peachy pie. This tiny rhyme is dedicated to Rachel, who makes messy, rich, delicious peach pie. The following two pieces are very short anecdotes about life as a parent. One of them has to do with my dad. It is about my dad, Lee Long, and it is called Lee Long on Whitewater Rafting. My father, while whitewater rafting, this is not enjoyable. It's like camping. You don't do it because it's fun. You do it because it will be a great memory. Again, I'm just going to say that again in quotes this time to make sure you understand this is what he said. This is not enjoyable. It's like camping. You don't do it because it's fun. You do it because it will be a great memory. My dad is like a whirlwind mashup of Will Rogers, Charles Barkley, Yogi Berra, and Harry Truman, a high-pressure, recirculating fountain of non-sequitur wisdom. Wisdom, in case you're wondering, is a word I just made up that's just one notch above wisdom. Thank you, universe, for sticking him in our corner. It is never dull. Dad, you are magnificent. I will raft with you any day of the week, as long as you are paying and if it is a big boat. Also, you should come camping with us. It would be fun. This next piece is about a different parent. It's about my wife and about me, and it's called There's Always the Bronze. Mommy! One of the children yelled from bed, I love you! You're my favorite parent! Good night! I calmly shrieked back to this child from a few rooms over. This child was disgruntled at me for any of a thousand reasons, or all. I love you, I said, and you're one of my favorite children. Oh, 
The child trumpeted back with confidence and a distinct lack of sorrow. Well, I'm sorry, but you're not one of my favorite parents. As Kurt Vonnegut might say, and so it goes. We are still in a pandemic, and I would like to talk for a few minutes about one of my favorite people in the world. She's 12 years old, our daughter, and how she is dealing with the pandemic. This is not an interview. It's simply some thoughts and observations and little snippets that I've had as we endure this as a world and country and family together. It's called, At the Moment of Crisis, You Will Assassinate Panic and Find Quiet Valor. A Pandemic for a 12-Year-Old. Snippets of joy that skitter through shatters and sunlight. I like long titles sometimes. Somewhere on this earth, there are likely two 12-year-old girls who have read the Caldecott-winning The Little Island to their three-year-old brother. I would like to know where the other duo is, as our household has in its possession the other pair. This 12-year-old snuggled mightily with her three-year-old brother, and my heart went to 350. People complain about the work ethic of every generation coming up behind them. I decided when I was around 10 that I wasn't going to someday be an adult who complained about the way kids did things. And when I look at our daughter, 12 years old, and frighteningly able to out-logic and out-wit on an ever-increasing basis, I get nervous. Nervous, proud, nervous, proud, happy. Nervous. This kid jumps in and helps. She helped haul brush a good chunk of a recent day, with no cajoling, pleading, or mandating. She just did it, jumped in, and helped. I'm sensitive to publicizing the triumphs and feats of our children, whatever and whenever they may be. I am loath to parade those things out for the public for many reasons. One of those reasons is just giving the opportunity for them to push themselves to improve because, just because, because of an internal drive, a need to excel and to improve and give your best. Not because your worth, value, or received affection will be greater. Just because you learn and know what you're capable of and what you can offer and share with the world, and you do it, and she does it. I don't need to post grades or test scores or athletic feats or creative accomplishments or any of that. I am proud, and I feel the need to share that pride of the fact that she jumps in. She gives her skills, and she dives into life. I love that so much. I want to be smart enough, wise enough, to remember that there is no generation, no age, that I cannot learn something valuable from. Humility is becoming a lost art and science. It seems like we've been eating really good the last week or so, she said. Yep, I said, that's because your mom has been doing all the cooking. Well, it's really good, she said. Yeah, (laughs) I agree. There is something beautiful about seeing two siblings side by side with cracked open MacBook Pros writing on their blogs and their respective laptops, eight and nine years old, resuscitated and kept alive over the years, including one that was heading to the elephant dinosaur graveyard before I brought it back to life. Am I bragging about rescuing a computer? Yes, I am. There is something about one-on-one time. When you have multiple kids, it can be hard to find. Finally, I decided to take matters into my own hands. Get out of bed, I ordered. Get out now. She slowly shuffled out, and I demanded that she snuggle with me while we watched World War Z. 
I loved the book, although the 2013 film has trouble covering all the epic ground of the novel. It is filled with scenes that feel necessary, as opposed to hopscotching around the globe just to go from one obstacle to another, in which the ending feels inevitable, a feeling I had with the much different and far inferior Da Vinci Code. Filled with action, suspense, and Brad Pitt in one of my favorite roles, this is what I told my daughter. That is how you need to respond when things are falling apart around you. I find him believable in this film. Cool-headed, but a great portrayal of a hero that feels real. Like there's something to be learned about how to still make good decisions under duress. Are you going to have trouble sleeping, I asked, with all the, you know, zombies and stuff? She turned to me with a giant grin. No. It was a moment. Two hours of moments that I treasured, and of the three times I've seen it, by far my fave. No idea why. To close out episode three, I'm going to talk about some assorted thoughts on parents and children. Thank you again for being here for episode three. These are some disconnected and various musings on childrening and family life. There are many different philosophies about naps during the childhood years, but I think they're super important. I also think sometimes children should do them too. Surprisingly, I found that most children do not consider sauerkraut to be an acceptable substitute when you're out of ice cream. Sometimes I like to make other adults agree to a loyalty oath that they will preemptively take my side anytime I am, I am in conflict with a young child. So far, their loyalty rate to me is 0%. Sometimes I hate it when kids are cuter than adults. The universe is so uncool. If you stick a piece of broccoli and a piece of chocolate in front of a kid, which one are they going to choose? How about a piece of broccoli and a piece of cauliflower? Think carefully about the choices you put before them. It's your choice over what choices to give them. One of my favorite things about the ages of two and three is the fight to figure out words, the right phrasing, a constant stream of trying out new syllables and words and sentences and ways to verbally express ideas. I love that. A lot of people ask me if they're a bad parent for letting their kids play Lady Gaga's Bad Romance at very loud volumes for dance parties. My answer is consistent, and it is this. You are a bad parent if you are not dancing along with them. A scenario. When you've dealt with enough mini injuries and catastrophes for one day, and your sweet little child runs up crying and sobbing from another mishap and wants to bury his head in your shoulder for comfort, and you hold him at arm's length while calmly requesting that he go wash his messy, dirty, food-filled face before using your clean shirt as a mop for the seventh time that day, then I don't know what to say. I'm sure someday I'll experience that scenario. The best cure for a child who says playing outside is boring is this. Number one, they should be outside more, regardless of weather, regardless of whether they're grumbly about it or not. Kids are super good at figuring out how to move past boredom when you don't jump in and save them from it. And number two, show them all the fun things you can do outside. Hint, it's amazing what you can do with a ball, a couple chairs, some sticks, cardboard, a book. The list is infinite, but show them. Now, we are in a pandemic right now, so this thought may not be entirely relevant for right now, but someday the world will return to a new normal where skate parks are open again, and I'd like to remind you of this. Skate parks are 
a public space. At least the publicly funded ones are. So take your young kids there with their scooters and Hot Wheels and bikes and gliders and skateboards and stop complaining about teenagers. Introduce yourself and be nice. Many of them will be too. If you have ever gotten into your children's special snacks reserved for special occasions without their consent and then sneaked into an empty room behind a door to consume them illicitly, then that is simply unpardonable. And yes, I have done so once or twice or 30 times. What would it be like to wake up, sit down, and drink a hot cup of coffee slowly to completion without interruption for diaper changing, conflict resolution, arbitration, or general question answering. I hope to find out someday. Sometimes I imagine what it would be like to go a day without changing a three weeks dead warthog smelling diaper, and then my imagination implodes because some scenarios are too far-fetched to even realistically imagine. I have worked at many physically demanding tasks and jobs, but none of them have been even close to his energy draining as the emotional fatigue of working with fussy children through tough times. The difference between a three-year-old and a 12-year-old being angry at you is that the former will run up angrily, demand that you hold them, and throw their arms around while they sweatily clutch you furiously and shriek in your ear. The other expresses displeasure in a different manner. If you go to a public performance of anything with your children. It is not the performer's job to educate your children on how to give respectful attention. It is your job, our job. How old should your child be before they drink coffee? I don't know. I simply do not know. Thank you so much for listening through to my third episode. Let me know if you have any suggestions, requests, or feedback. I appreciate your support for listening. Please subscribe here if you like what you've heard. I would also like to remind you uh, to check out Jeremy Long, Jeremy M. Long, known as J.M. Long or Shade Garden on SoundCloud. Uh, You can also find him on Instagram. My brother makes great music, helps other people make great music as well. Also, my little sister, Lanessa, Sheree Long, on Instagram and YouTube and various places. Also, a delightful, charismatic performer, artist, musician. You're definitely going to want to check her out as well. Um, In the meantime, you can go to verylongchronicles.com or verylongmedia.com for more thoughts, stories, photographs, musings on life, love, education, and people. Thank you again. Play hard, make stuff, be kind. Until next, Joseph out. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.